Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. The emperor's got no clothes on, no clothes that can't be. He's the emperor. Take that child away. Don't let the people hear the words he has to say. You know, I sense uh, some of the feelings of producer Betsy Kaplan coming out in some of these musical choices lately. Uh, Anyway, welcome back from your weekend. This is Colin McEnroe. Welcome to the show. And as we often try to do on Mondays, even before all this started, we are going to try to pull together some of the threads of news and policy. These days, of course, it's more important to do that, and it does seem like a very moving target, one that changes an awful lot. Later in the show, you're going to hear a commentator and now television producer, creator, Frank Rich, join us. Also, towards the end of the show, I've been noticing overflowing barrels of trash in my neighborhood. got me thinking about, first of all, just the role of... Uh, of the people who take your trash away. They are essential workers, uh, and maybe we're thinking a little bit about what they're up against, but also, like, why are we producing so much trash? Anyway, Mike Mike Payne, who we check in with occasionally anyway, will uh, help us understand that. But to get things started, uh, we've got Dr. David Grew, a radiation oncologist, co-chair of the Cancer Committee at St. Francis Hospital. He's also a public health messenger with a master's degree in public health. Uh, He's been writing a, a bit about that, and uh, as we get ready to talk to David, maybe just a moment to talk about the public message, health messaging we got over the last, I don't know, 48 hours. Uh, Dr. Deborah Burks, the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, uh, cautioned that Americans should expect some form of social distancing guidelines to continue for months. Social distancing will be with us through the summer, she said. Uh, but uh, Mike Pence, in pretty much the same time span, said that the epidemic would be under control by the end of May. Uh, by Memorial Day weekend, we will ha- largely have this coronavirus uh, epidemic behind us, he said late last week. Uh, Bill Gates on the Today Show I never thought, by the way, I was going to trust and rely on Bill Gates as much as I have lately. Bill Gates on the Today Show said, I wish I could say we're halfway through, but I don't think so. It takes time to make a vaccine. There's a lot about the disease we don't understand. So, first of all, uh, Dr. David Grew, welcome to our show. Hey, Colin. Thanks for having me. So you've had a lot of experience with this in places like New Orleans, uh, after Katrina, uh, Uganda. And so public mess- public health messaging, it's not the only part of public, public health, but it's a big part of public health. And I would assume having a, a pretty clear and unified set of messages would be a good place to start. Exactly. That's key is, you know, we need to get a, a cohesive, clear message out and we need to get it out early and it needs to be consistent and as you just kind of reviewed we we have had some trouble with that here um so we we really we need to kind of consolidate the message and that's what i've been trying to do over the last six weeks or so 
So, you know, as we look around the world, we, we try to glean lessons, you know, what happened in China. We're watching now what's happening in Singapore after they initially seemed to suppress the disease pretty uh, successfully. We're watching what's happens, happening in Sweden, where they took a radically different approach. But it seems, David, that we're going to increasingly just be watching different states around the United States as they kind of engage in nerve-wracking observational public health experiments. I mean, you know, as of today, Georgia is open in a whole bunch of different ways, including things like restaurants and movie theaters. And there's a bunch of questions there, starting with what appears to be the case that, you know, people are making their own decisions. Uh, you know, restaurants aren't necessarily reopening in Georgia. In Florida, one of the reasons it's not as big a bloodbath as it might have been appears to be because Floridians just didn't pay any attention to what the governor said and practiced much more social distancing than they've been asked to. So I don't know, maybe that's because of the absence of clear messaging. People just start making their own decisions. That's that's perhaps, yeah, that's perhaps a fair interpretation. I, I would say that the unsung hero thus far is is the American citizen, right? Mm -hmm. So they are receiving sort of conflicting messages, but the average person has done an incredible job of just being disciplined about adhering to the social distancing and isolation guidelines that they've heard, uh, whether they heard it from their state, local, federal officials, they're playing ball. They are they are shutting it down and they're being safe. And we have the evidence of that now as we begin to see the curves flatten, not just across the country, New York City, but right here in Connecticut. It's starting to happen and it's because of the people. Right. But I think it's also important to help people remember the difference between a curve flattening and some kind of end in sight for the disease. And it does seem not just here, but numbers of Western economies seem to be likely to start reopening when they still have new cases emerging. Uh, and maybe you could say a little bit about that. Yeah. So the the big question is that's on everyone's mind is when can we reopen? And you've seen more and more of a popular movement to reopen now or reopen yesterday or reopen last week. You know, uh, this is a big problem to reopen right now, not just from a public health standpoint, but from an economic standpoint, too. If we reopen right now, we will see the new infection spike, we will see the hospitalization spike, and that's because we still don't have adequate testing and contact tracing. So that's a public health problem. But from an economic standpoint, if we reopen right now in the absence of those measures, then we are going to see a second wave that may very well lead to a second lockdown. And I believe the economic consequences of that would be very difficult. Right. And um, that's why I think the conversation around reopening needs to kind of look down the road and any conversation about reopening right now, while our hospitals are still filled with covid patients is premature. Right. And, you know, I mean, you and I were emailing earlier today and I was saying, 
you know, I mean, another part of this, another part of the quote unquote lockdown or a byproduct of the lockdown is conventional medicine has been basically on pause. Uh, outpatient treatment, kind of, it looks like the stock market only less volatile, just kind of going down. A lot of things that I would not consider to be elective surgeries are considered elective and therefore are not being performed. One thing that you saw when you were in New Orleans uh, in January of 2006 is that there was kind of a, a increased mortality that extended for a long time, six months beyond the storm itself, right? Because there were just sort of a lot of things that happened that shouldn't have happened and a lot of things that should have happened that didn't happen. And, and there was sort of a, a grim harvest that was reaped. Exactly. So we made a simple observation that I think you and probably many of your listeners have as well, which is that the obituaries page was getting longer and longer. And so we called the state health department and said, hey, what's going on? Are people still dying uh, six months after Katrina at much higher rates? And they basically said, we'll get you that data in three years. But we needed to know now what's happening. So we looked through the obituaries and verified that this was a reliable indicator of vital statistics. And then we looked at the change over time, and we saw that, yes, there was about a 50% increase in deaths, even six months after the storm. So we started to drill down on that, what could have been contributing to it. And it's exactly this kind of stuff, procedures that would have formerly been elective, whether it's an electrocardiogram or uh, an echocardiogram or a chest x-ray or some other routine thing is just not happening because the health system wasn't able to handle it. Uh, that's happening in some places in Connecticut right now, right? So our hospitals are in surge capacity. And so these kinds of procedures that are finding preventable diseases may not be happening. And so this is why, part of the reason why, we need to get this infection, this epidemic under control so that we can discharge patients from the hospitals. And then, then we can resume doing these kinds of elective procedures, which will prevent the other deaths that could happen, not directly from COVID infection, but indirectly because the system can't handle Right. I, I, you know, I mean, this isn't even a speculative thing for me. As you know, David, uh, I had a melanoma removed uh, a, a year or two ago, and it was spotted early by a sort of old time, very careful uh, artistic dermatologist named Dr. Nathanson. Uh, he caught it early. It got removed early. It was still no day at the beach. But I mean, you know, if this something like that had happened in a window like this one, I'm probably not at my regular appointment with Dr. Nathanson. He's not catching it early months and months and months go by. You're an oncologist. You know, I mean, this could really be deadly uh, not catching stuff like this because you're not doing face-to-face -face visits. Exactly. And so a frustrated person may say, well, just start doing them again. But we can't do that right now because the hospitals have had to expand their capacity into utilize the space that would other, otherwise be used for those kinds of elective procedures. And so it's just not possible right now. We need to get the numbers down and sustain them low so that we can get those kinds of uh, quote-unquote elective cancer surgeries, even though that's not really how I think about it, but that's kind of how it's going right now, um, get them done so that we can save those people's lives.
it you know you, you, we can sit here and speculate all day about this but you do sort of wonder how much in re-engineering of medicine will happen at the end of this it's always a risk when you fight the last war with new measures on the other hand this feels like you know so, uh, such a profound and all-encompassing global experience that we we can't not try to learn from it. You sort of wonder whether hospitals will kind of maybe reconfigure themselves a little bit so that, you know, in a con in a comparable in a COVID-23 scenario, there'd be sort of COVID space and non-COVID space that somehow or other you could keep the other kind of medicine going. I, I agree. So it's going to be impossible to undo some of the very smart innovations that have happened over the last six weeks. The, the most obvious one is the telemedicine visit, right? So it has been weeks since I saw a new patient consultation in person. I'm doing everything by video, and that's for their safety, my safety, and that of my staff and my patients. Now, in some cases, I need to see people in person right away because there's a physical exam element that's critical. But for other cases where I can do the physical exam, perhaps the next time I see them in a week or two, it's perfectly safe to do a video conference. And that may be something that we see stays after this pandemic. That would be, you know, perhaps a cheaper, a more convenient way to practice medicine. You know, the flip side of everything that we're saying is, uh, and I sometimes feel a little guilty being such a voice for caution and for uh, erring on the side of caution uh, with, with the relaxation of social distancing when, you know, I can do my job from home. I got money coming in. I'm relatively comfortable. Uh, there are a lot of people who aren't. There are a lot of people who really need their jobs. They're struggling with the whole unemployment question. They're also... Um, you know, people who are just housebound in very difficult situations, feeling the incredible stress and strain of everybody packed into a space and no kids going to school and no spouse going to work. You know, there's just psychological and economic strain across the board. And David, I, I don't know if there's any, there's no formula, right, for how you factor one of these things against the other. No, but what I think we need to do right now is begin to recruit those other workers, small business owners, to start thinking right now about how they can reconfigure their business to conduct business in a safe way for their employees and their customers once we do begin to loosen these restrictions. And I'll give you an example. The way that we encounter patients in our cancer center right now is unrecognizable from what it was six weeks ago. You are met at the door by a team in full PPE to take your temperature and a thorough history about exposure and symptoms. We have everybody wears a mask all day. It's converted to telemedicine. There's no, there's no um, patient guests allowed or a partner allowed anymore for infection control. Now, we may, need not, we may not need to go that extreme at a Home Depot or something, but we certainly need to start thinking about those kinds of very basic measures. And as we loosen restrictions, if you're a small business owner, you know, if you're a barber in the north end of Hartford or a restaurant owner somewhere else, it doesn't matter. You need to start thinking now about how you can reopen. So once our economy gets going, it doesn't sputter because of new outbreaks and infections. We need to open in a smart way that can keep this under control until we get a vaccine. I think the other thing people are going to have to prepare for psychologically is that, 
Yeah, when things reopen in a different way, and as you're suggesting, so many things are going to look different, uh, they're going to feel different, they're going to be different. And so if an airplane can't have middle seats anymore, or if a restaurant has to cut the number of tables by a third or more in order to create sufficient spacing, you know, things may get more expensive. I mean, a plane flight will get more expensive if they have fewer seats to sell, a restaurant. I mean, there's, there's going to be a way in which the new life that we wind up leading at least until a vaccine is found, if not beyond that, people have to sort of change their expectations a little bit. Very much so. Very much so. I mean, we need a complete frame shift in how we think about how we're going to relate to people socially and go out and spend money. But if we don't have consumers and small business owners starting to think about now how to adapt to those things, then we will have uncontrolled outbreaks once we reopen. And so I just want your listeners to understand that, yes, they're going to need to be patient. And if you own a business, you need to start thinking now about how to open it safely so that when we do reopen, we're really rocking and rolling and we don't have to shut it down again because the hospitals are exceeding surge capacity again. You know, it seems to me, I know you have to go here pretty soon. So I guess this will be the last question. And, and you're an oncologist, not a virologist. So this, I'm just asking this question in a very general way. But it, it seems as though we're making public policy or we're trying to, in an anticipatory way, um, look at sort of, you know, maybe the next six months before even really understanding what kind of creature it is that we're dealing with. I mean, basic questions like, does this virus confer immunity onto people who've had it? How long does that immunity last? How, how does this virus really work in the body? Because there are like these new scenarios that are uh, unfolding that don't correspond to a typical respiratory virus. We've got this critter who's out there and it's incredibly dangerous, but I, I don't know that we really know exactly what this critter is and how it operates. We don't. Um, and, and that is a, a big concern of everyone who's a provider. Um, I, I will tell you that in our field, we do uh, do CAT scans rather routinely on our patients, not for diagnostic pur purposes, but to make sure that we're delivering the treatment in a very precise fashion. And several of my colleagues throughout the country have seen asymptomatic patients with the very typical COVID pattern on the lungs on these CAT scans. And then even though they have no symptoms, they go and swab the nose, turns out they've got the disease. And so there's a lot of things that we're learning that we just, we don't have our arms around this disease yet. And so for that and many other reasons, this is not the flu. First, the flu as a vaccine for this, we don't. This is something we don't know much about yet. And so until we have the appropriate measures in place, we need to be very judicious about how we loosen up the restrictions. All right, Dr. David Grew, a voice of reason amid the chaos. We are happy to have you here, radiation oncologist, co-chair of the Cancer Committee, St. Francis Hospital, public health messenger, also with a master's degree in public health. David, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks, Colin. All right, you stay safe. Uh, and we're going to take a break. We're going to talk to I, I sort of feel like I have a personal connection to every guest on this show. But anyway, Frank Rich and I have known each other, I think, since Iran-Contra. So, you know, you do the math. Anyway, Frank Rich will be joining us after this. I've been down that road before And I ain't going back And don't you brag to me 
All right, we're back, uh, and uh, we're going to talk now to Frank Rich. Uh, I first got to know him after he was the Broadway critic, theater critic for the New York Times when he became a columnist. Uh, since then, he's done a lot of other things. He's a writer at large for New York Magazine now and executive producer for the HBO series Veep, which is now concluded, and Succession, which we are eagerly, eagerly awaiting future installments of. Frank, glad to have you back on the air. Nice to hear your voice. How are you? I'm fine, and I hope you're uh, well, too. Yeah, you know, more or less. It gets old. <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, you know, given there's a pan- pandemic and a lunatic in charge of it, uh, it's like it's one of those, uh, aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln added to enjoy the play moment. Right. So I remember you and I were um, talking uh, together in New York when you were in the middle of making Veep. And I think you'd uh, uh, taken uh, the production into Washington at the time. And and for people who haven't Mm -hmm. seen Veep, Veep is basically about, you know, uh, a seemingly imaginary look at what if the most you know, exploitive, cynical, uh, negligent people (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and profoundly ignorant people were in charge of everything. And one of the things you were saying uh, on this particular occasion was that when you went to Washington, it turned out that you were it was more difficult than you had imagined to invent people who were more depraved uh, and, <laughs> and and ignorant than people who were there. Right? People were coming up to you and saying, "Oh, well, I'm Jonah, and um, Jonah is absolutely the worst of a very bad bunch of characters." And, and I would imagine yeah. that feeling stronger now, if anything. How could you write the scenes that are happening? Uh, uh, well, we, our... we got out. We got out just in time. I mean, for instance, we've had, you know, we, we we've had versions of almost every one of these stories, including, you know, uh, uh, accusing Chinese of, of, of you know conspiracies against America, having a Jonah, in fact a presidential candidate who's um, an anti-vaxxer and then ends up spreading uh, the much less lethal chicken pox among his own supporters at rallies and his own family uh, and killing somebody in the process. Um, so, yes, we and we were aware of it because even though obviously uh, things have gotten exponentially worse since we wrapped up, we were in a, a frantic dash once uh, uh, Trump got in to to nail it all down uh, as best we could. We couldn't do the show now. As, you know, uh, I hope people are still finding it funny. Was it Julia? We drive to I think it's she who said, you know, we've gone from being a, uh, 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 you know, a farcical satire to being kind of a cold, realistic documentary about Washington. Right. So let's hear a little of Julia Louis-Dreyfus as Selena Meyer uh, losing it when she learns she's in a tie for the presidency at the end of season four. I'm going to the rally. Well, uh, ma'am, ma'am, that, that would be unprecedented. No, I'll tell you what's unprecedented, Kent. A tie is unprecedented. So's becoming the first lady president. So's that jack-off becoming president through the back door. Okay, the rule book's been torn up now, and America is wiping its nasty ass with it. So, but you know, I mean, 
I would, uh, you know, after watching these completely bizarre, rambling press briefings, which apparently we're now going to uh, have a little bit of a throttle back on, um, it is, uh, it's hard to imagine Selena doing a worse job and, and being a poorer communicator than a guy who's going to stand up there and just muse about people internally ingesting or injecting disinfectants. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, I could talk to my Veep friends, including Julia, uh, about what's going on now. It's just, it's mind-boggling. Look, at least Selena, uh, she had incompetently written speeches that she often incompetently read, but she did have some sense of having a script and trying to at least do something that would not get her into trouble, even as it served her interests and not the interests of the voters. Um but this is something, you know, it's, it's gone from uh, narcissistic and, uh, you know, um, power mad to, you know, sociopathic. I mean, what's going on now, what happened over the weekend with those crazy tweets about the, the Nobel Prize for journalism and then deleting the tweets and trying to justify them. This all during his wife's birthday, by the way, and while... Hundreds of thousands of people are dying around the country. It, it beggars the imagination. It's sort of beyond uh, comedy and satire, I think. Yes, beyond. Although I, I will say watching Deborah Burks and watching especially lately Redfield from the CDC and watching Fauci, I, I, I find myself thinking of another movie by your primary collaborator there, Armando Iannucci, his uh, death of Stalin, you know, where you very see, much he does such a great job of showing what it's like for officials to try to say anything when they know the wrong word can bring down the axe. Now, these people uh, are not going to suffer the fate of people who crossed Joe Stalin. But there is that kind of abruptness, right? If you say things the wrong way. I mean, Redfield, who was brought up onto the stage to retract something that he had actually said and that he was really essentially unwilling to retract, but f had to find some way to say it so that he survived this particular public appearance. It just does feel I, a lot I, like that movie. It does. It's a great movie, by the way, uh, which I had nothing to do with. And I recommend to uh, um, anyone who hasn't seen it, stream it, because it's a well-needed laughter right now and does sort of do exactly what you said, Colin. And and also app, of course, is the HBO miniseries Chernobyl, but uh, Death of Stalin at least can, can give you some laughter too, morbid laughter. But uh, um, uh, yeah, it's no, you're right. That's what it feels like. And just erase it, pretending things didn't happen and trying uh, and people tiptoeing around him and afraid, you know, like, think of what. Steve Buscemi wasn't it in, in the death of Solomon coming back and saying to his wife, as I think it was playing Khrushchev, of, yeah. I hope my jokes were funny. I hope Solomon <laughs> found my, you know, I gave him some laughs. That's my memory of that moment. Anyway, his desperation to please an insane boss. Right. And so and this is not uh, random speculation. Uh, we know from the firing of Dr. Rick Bright, who was the uh, guy uh, who was leading uh, the White House vaccine effort and then suddenly uh, was fired or reassigned. Um, and, and that was uh, apparently I mean, he, he has as much as said that uh, it was his reluctance, reluctance to participate in the hydroxychloroquine uh, uh, trumpeting that that caused 
this. I mean, it, it really was kind of a yeah. ideological purge. Yeah, he, ins- he actually insisted that a, that a drug intended for other diseases that the President of the United States had told people, told the entire country to take because what do you got to lose by trying it uh, should be tested. And of course, now we know from the first test there are that's potentially uh, lethal uh, if you take it, um, in a, you know, willy-nilly, not for what it's prescribed for, with no medical supervision. Um, but yeah, that got him fired. And look, I feel uh, it's amazing to me Fauci hasn't been fired. I feel both Redfield and particularly uh, Deborah Burks uh, are completely uh, craven and uh, they've gone too far in, in letting Trump and not and not counterbalancing Trump's things like, you know, inject yourself with the disinfectant. I mean, I, I think it's just whorish behavior, particularly on Deborah Brooks's part. And uh, uh, it's it's right out. You're right. It's right out of the death of Stalin. Unfortunately, in this case, Stalin's still alive. Mm. So uh, one of the things that I think we're looking at now. So here's here's Trump. He's in this odd position where, first of all, I think in many ways, he has, and in many ways that we should be somewhat grateful for, he has rendered himself much less relevant than any president could imaginably be in a national crisis like this one. I mean, he's just increasingly the person mm-hmm. that nobody listens to. Uh, and and right. that's sort of filtering down. Vox just did a terrific piece where they were trying to figure out why Florida doesn't, Florida doesn't have the kind of death toll that might be expected with so little social control and the using some Google data it turns out people are practicing social distancing. They're completely ignoring Governor DeSantis. I think people are also ignoring Trump, which is a good thing, except that he's not the kind of person who likes to be ignored. He's had to throttle back on these briefings because they've just become such catastrophes. But you kind of wonder what his next play is, because there's got to be a next play, right? He's not going to be yeah, willing to be he, irrelevant. He, I think he'll be back at the briefings. Maybe they'll be retitled or something in a matter of minutes, because... He obviously felt over the weekend that somehow he could turn Twitter into a platform for what he wanted to do weekend briefings for. And it turned out to blow up in such a way that I suspect even he's aware, someone around him is aware of it because they wouldn't have deleted all those tweets if they didn't think they were embarrassing and doing further damage. But he can't, and he's ordering you know, all these kids to come to West Point and parents at you know, health risk and all that. But he can't really do rallies. And one reason he can't do rallies is he doesn't give a damn if people get, gather in close quarters and, and die because of it. But what he does care about is exactly what you just said is happening in Florida, that people will still social distance and that the turnout will be poor. Uh, and that to him, as we know, from Inauguration Day on, the size of his crowd, we will imagine is it. So the last thing he wants to do is hold a rally that's not full. So he's going to have to keep being on TV some way. And I imagine whether he calls them press briefings or whatever they call them, maybe he'll go and start that radio show in competition with you that he, he, he didn't, uh, he didn't do because he was afraid that Rush Limbaugh would be uh, annoyed at him, but something's going to give. He's not going to sit, sit in the Oval Office, eat junk food, watch cable news and just, tweet, I think. 
Right. And I think the other thing that has been terrifying, but also fascinating to watch, is the role of Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's obviously become more trusted and more popular uh, than Trump, which is a very dangerous position to be in. He doesn't like rivals. He doesn't like to be eclipsed in any way. And then apparently, I was unaware of this going into the weekend, but or I'd forgotten it, I guess. But weeks ago, somebody had asked who should play him in the movie. And Fauci, as a joke, kind of pointed to his face and said, well, it should be Brad Pitt, of course, right? Uh, so right. here's what here's what happened on Saturday Night Live on Saturday night. Take it away, Kat. Now, there is a rumor that the president is going to fire me. Let's see what he said about that. Today I walk in, I hear I'm going to fire him. I'm not firing him. I think he's a wonderful guy. So yeah, I'm getting fired. But until then, I'm going to be there putting out the facts for whoever's listening. And when I hear things like the virus can be cured if everyone takes the Tide Pod challenge, I'll be there to say, please don't. So, you know, I think there's been an effort by a lot of us to confer so many blessings upon Anthony Fauci that Trump won't dare to fire him. It's, it's such a, a razor's edge that we're running our thumb down, though, because, you know, you want to make him popular enough so that Trump doesn't dare fire him. But if you make him too popular, Trump will fire him for that. Yeah, well, look, I think he may well fire him. I thought, by the way, I thought that sketch was was great uh, on SNL, not because it was especially funny or as your listeners could hear, Brad Pitt did a particularly good uh, uh, impersonation of Fauci's accent, but I think having the most charming, you know, sort of magnetic and arguably popular male uh, movie star in America play Fauci <laughs> must have driven Trump insane. As as insane as uh, uh, anything Fauci himself has done, but I think that I could picture him firing Fauci. Indeed, if 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 really Trump is going to stay away from uh, these pressers uh, for a period of time, which as I say I doubt, and Fauci is in the lead position or one of the lead positions, that'll be it. He will not. Trump will not be able uh, uh, to take it. Maybe he won't fire him. Maybe he'll just do like he did to uh, the, 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 what the, the, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Azar, and just put him in a gulag somewhere uh, so no one knows what the hell he's doing or where he is. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, and it, mm -hmm. it's it's never too early to begin worrying about this, but, you know, I, I was actually listening to a, an interview uh, with Stacey Abrams today. I'm not pushing Stacey Abrams as a, as a running right. mate choice, but Stacey Abrams has thought longer and harder than most people about voting and voting under troubling situations, voting uh, where you're not necessarily confident uh, about uh, whether or not your vote will be countered, whether you'll be allowed to vote. Uh, and uh, she also, of course, has the advantage of being, in some people's minds, the rightful governor of Georgia at a moment when Georgia is taking some very precarious steps uh, towards reopening. But right. as listening to her talk, I was thinking, you know, the, the I don't I don't care who Biden picks as his running mate at this point. The argument for picking Stacey Abrams might be this is going to be that kind of election, you know, where voting itself is going to be so unbelievably besieged by by challenges and obstacles that maybe having somebody there who thinks about this all the time is a good idea. Maybe. So, look, she's a victim of uh, voter suppression. She's an expert on it. It's become her cause and, a very, and for all the reasons you say, an incredibly important cause right now. 
that said, um, it, it may it may be you could argue be better that she's not on the ticket and mm-hmm. she's spending full time empowered with lots of attorneys, uh, not just from Georgia, but from all over the country to run an effort, uh, a legal effort and a policing effort of some sort uh, to stop, try to stop the chicanery that's going to go on. Um, so that might be a better use of her time than, you know, uh, cutting virtual chickens and Zoop rally, you know, eating virtual chickens and Zoop rallies or, uh, and Zoom rallies or whatever. I'd also say as a producer of Veep, I don't think it matters who yeah. <laughs> really matters who the vice presidential nominee is in terms of how people are going to vote. I no, I, I think that's true, too. And, you know, vice presidential nominees, running mates always have two functions. One of them is theoretically to supply some electoral help to the nominee, although as I would agree with you, I think that's kind of a chimera more than it is a reality. Uh, right. But the, the other real job they have is to take over if the president dies. Here you have, you know, this kind of historically old man taking the reins of right. the presidency if Biden wins. I think it really matters this time, just in the same sense that, you know, one of the problems with Palin was that McCain had, had all these gigantic health problems already uh, as of 2008. You know, I, I think this is a, a pick you really want to watch and make sure it's somebody who could be president. Right, and 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 I, I'm a huge uh, admirer of Stacey Abrams, but she's she's not run anything on a huge scale. That's not a character flaw. It's just you know she's had a young, she's a relatively young person with a you know a, a, a young career and who should have been running Georgia instead of this idiot uh, Kemp, but isn't because it was stolen from her. But and that to me maybe, but I think you're right. The main criterion may uh, uh, be uh, the ability to take over. Now, in the case of Palin, he was, he, you know, McCain had, had bouts of illness, but also she was so unlike, if Stacey Abrams took over, I wouldn't lose sleep about it. I think right. she'd probably be great. Sarah Palin was this reckless shoot from the hip. Forget about her ideology or her politics. Crazy person. Mm. And I, um, who actually had run a state, allegedly, um, but was so obviously unsuited, at least by the standards of that time, of course, next to the current incumbent uh, in the White House, she may, she may seem now like, you know, Avril Harriman, but um, uh, it's, uh, uh, it is an issue with Biden, there's no question about it. Well, we feel so lucky to uh, borrow a little bit of your time, uh, Frank Rich, oh, Frank Rich. Uh, writer at large uh, for The New Yorker and the uh, developer uh, or co-developer of such tremendous TV treasures as Veep and uh, Succession. We can't wait. When, when, how long do we have to wait? You, you probably have no idea when you could possibly restart we, Succession, we, right? I mean, I, I can tell you the honest answer. We have, we have no idea. What was supposed to happen was we were supposed to start shooting actually this, this week. Mm. Uh, and we were supposed to, the hope was to air next fall obviously we have to wait and so we we shot nothing because we we were readying scripts we weren't shooting yet we were in pre-production when the lockdown happened and so we just um we have to wait like everyone else and we can't do anything until uh we know people's health is going to be protected and, and 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 the same as any other industry you know and uh believe me in the in the, in the scheme of things 
creating entertainment is, is not the highest priority, but we do have our own issues like a sound, you know, a sound stage. Can you put pack people in, you know, crew and cast to shoot anything? Can you travel people to get to where they're supposed to be shooting? You know, million issues. So we just have to take it as it comes like everyone else and be good citizens during the pandemic and, and not be impatient and only go when, you know, it makes sense uh, uh, in terms of people's health and safety. All right. Wise words, uh, as usual, from Frank Rich. Thanks for being with me today. Great talking to you, as always. Look forward to it again soon, I hope. Yeah, you take care of yourself, Frank. And we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. I really, you know, there's so many people who they don't get to take the crisis off. And one of those groups of people are the people who pick up the trash, uh, the people who show up in trucks and lift your barrels up, uh, which happened in front of my house this morning. We're going to talk to Mike Payne about that. No one is alone. Truly, no one is alone. Got to say a quick thanks uh, to Kat Pastor. Uh, she is in the studio making it possible uh, for uh, the rest of us to work remotely. And by the rest of us, I mean especially uh, Betsy Kaplan, the senior producer, who's the executive, uh, who's the producer of this particular episode. I have to say something about tomorrow. So we've had a show sitting in the vaults for two years since I think May of 2018 or no later than that, I think, uh, that... Um, it was a. It was. I think it was called. Are we ready for the next pandemic? We did it in 2018. We actually did it just coincidentally. It happened right around the time the White House pandemic response team was effectively disbanded, with some of them being reassigned and some of them being let go. Uh, we talked to a lot of the people who really have become key players in the in the current situation. And I had some misgivings about re-airing it. First of all, I didn't want it to seem like I told you so journalism, and I didn't want to scare people who just didn't understand the context. But we really have decided it's worth it to show you that there was a lot of very useful thinking going on uh, back in, in 2018. It wasn't as though nobody had any idea that this could happen. People had very specific ideas that, that this could happen and what would happen if it did happen. All right. So, um, yeah, there's a group of people that maybe, you know, when we think about all the people who perform essential services, uh, who can't uh, work from home, who can't sit out a pandemic, uh, maybe the uh, the refuse industry isn't the, your first thought, but it should be one of your thoughts because, yeah, I mean, they have to keep functioning. So we want to talk to Mike Payne now. He's been on the show uh, uh, previously. He's the president of Payne's Incorporated. Uh, Mike, first of all, welcome back to our airwaves. Thank you very much. Good to so, be here. So maybe just first of all, in a, just in a quick nutshell, talk about what it's like to have to stay in business, stay working at a time like this. Well, first of all, we uh, are really glad we're able to take care of our customers. We really looked at what we need to do to be able to take care of those customers and keep our people safe. We've made a, a bunch of changes here at the company, both in uh, cleaning our uh, vehicles so that uh, there's no viruses left in them. We're uh, washing our hands like everybody else. Some of the people are wearing face masks. Uh, we're very fortunate that most of our drivers and folks work uh, individually in a truck by themselves. Uh, we've had to institute some uh, new rules, for lack of a better term. In some towns, we will take extra material that's on the ground. Uh, we are no longer doing that to, frankly, do our social distancing from everything. And uh, 
a lot of this continues to evolve. And uh, in some cases, uh, some of the transfer stations that we haul from have been closed, uh, frankly, to keep people socially distanced and uh, safe. Um, You know, one thing that I was walking around the neighborhood last night, happens to be pickup day here this morning, uh, and I saw some barrels that were like really overflowing. And I'm guessing a couple of things are happening. One of them is just in the same sense that one of the reasons you can't get toilet paper is a lot of it and a lot of other food things are produced for institutional settings. So they're produced in different ways, they're packaged in different ways and sold in different ways. Uh, And none of that's going on right now. All of the refuse generating activity that people are doing in many cases is centered right in the home. So I'm guessing that's maybe part of the reason that the barrels are getting fuller and fuller and fuller, but you'd have a better insight. Uh, what is it, are other things going on here? There are other things going on, and, you know, uh, the, the example you gave was a great one because people are not working uh, in an office setting, they're working from the home. So the the waste coming out of everyone's uh, residential dwelling is increased. Um, our commercial customers, uh, offices, bars, restaurants, many of the businesses have dramatically uh, reduced service or even uh, paused it for a bit till they can reopen the doors. You know, we're not picking up at the schools because the schools are closed. Uh, some of the schools that are still serving meals, um, are open and we're picking that material up, but there's been a, a big increase in our residential service, both trash and recycle, and uh, a decrease in the uh, commercial trash and recycle. I'm uh, guessing also, also Amazon boxes, takeout containers, a whole bunch of stuff uh, is probably accumulating in, in larger amounts. Yes, uh, that, that's been an increase. Uh, I, I don't have any uh, statistical data of how many more boxes or vehicles are in town, but I'm seeing a lot more when I do get out of the office. So maybe just say a little bit about the people. You know, I mean, these are, un, uh, you know, maybe I get up early enough to wave uh, at the, the people in the truck, or but usually I probably don't. You know, these are people, and they're pe- the back at your facility. There's people there, and uh, this is a scary time. And I don't know, maybe you could help us put kind of a human face uh, on the people that you've got who are facing these uh, these kinds of challenges. Um, we are really, really fortunate. We have absolutely great people here that appreciate being an essential service and really want to take care of their customers. And our job is to balance their desire to take care of the customer, but also keep them safe and uh, explaining to them a lot of these things, um, how to keep them safe. You know, everybody understands washing your hands, but we're literally going through our, our uh, time clock and wiping it down multiple times a day because that's a way that stuff could get transmitted. And, uh, you know, it's, it's good practices, and, and I'm sure, like all of us, we know things are going to change <laughs> going forward. We're not quite sure how because things keep evolving, but the, the, the folks here, we're, we're, we're very fortunate, both at our company and, and I think uh, many of the other companies just have wonderful people that uh, like what they do and uh, just want to do a good job and, and be proud of what they do. Mike, I got about two minutes left. Is there, are there things that we, the customers, can do to make this, the conditions for your workers easier? How can we, how can we help? Uh, let's see. First of all, the uh, um, contain your, your rubbish, your trash, put it in bags and bag it, put it all in the trash barrel. 
Um, even if it is fuller than you would like, please get everything in there because we're not able to take the stuff that is not contained. Uh, conversely, what's in the recycling, do not bag it. Break the boxes down. Um, try to fit everything in there because we, we just can't have the guys getting out of the truck and uh, picking up stuff. Um, really think ahead and, uh, you know, uh, offer to help your neighbor out. If, if he has uh, too much to fit in his barrel, allow him to put a bag in yours. Again, it's bagged, so, you know, as long as no one's handling any, the individual trash, they're fine. Uh, really, I've also seen some absolutely wonderful examples of neighbors helping neighbors. I passed somebody in the grocery store today who's shopping for the 84-year-old lady down the road who just is afraid to go out, so he does the shopping for her. Just a lot of stuff like that, and it's pretty pretty cool. Neighbor across the street had a birthday for his daughter, so everybody was going by honking the horn. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe didn't appreciate it late at night, but uh, nonetheless, it's it's just nice good things to see. Yeah, be nice. Uh, that's a pretty good advice right there. Uh, and Mike, you're a nice guy too. Mike Payne is joining us from Payne's Incorporated. Thank you so much uh, for visiting with us today. Thank you and be safe out there. Yes. And to all the rest of you too. Yeah, be safe. Tomorrow, once again, we are going to re-air a show from 2018. Uh, and it, it's a show that we did uh, about that whole question of, you know, are we prepared? What would it take to be prepared? You'll even hear about a Nebraska facility that we were talking about in 2018 that turned out to be the place, uh, one of the first places they brought people from the cruise ship uh, and, and where, as it turned out, uh, the response, the, the people at the Nebraska facility in Omaha who were trained for this when they got the cruise ship people, they looked at the whole situation and they said, there's no way we can contain this. It's already too late. So anyway, uh, that's what that show is tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Uh, we've got other exciting new shows planned for you this week. You'll hear all about them as we go along. Maybe you have lost your mind. Maybe only that.